0: You guys should sit down front sometime and hear yourselves sing. It's a beautiful thing to hear God's people in worship. Well, Jake mentioned last week that we are beginning a new series this summer, and we're calling it Gospel and Law. And when I was a when I was first when I first became a Christian, statements like this in the Bible would. Uh, would give me heartburn. Right? Psalm 119, one, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalm one nineteen, like Psalm one that we read for call to worship, talks about the law of God being a delight. And that gave me concern because it didn't feel very delightful. Right? If we are if we are a people saved by grace, then then what do we do with passages like Leviticus 11.44, be holy because I am holy. Or 1 Peter 1, which actually quotes Leviticus and tells us to be holy in all of our conduct. Or the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of Grace himself, who tells us in 1 Corinthians 7 that neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Maybe Jesus is most perplexing when he says this in Matthew 5, his Sermon on the Mount, which is full of commands. He says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And this is the part that gives me heartburn. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are all very hard sayings, and each of them should be considered on its own merit, in its own context, all of that. But, but I read that, and I'm tempted to go, what? What do we do? What do we do with statements like that? What do we do with the law? Because it's clear from those passages that the law, God's law, has a bearing on the Christian life. What is the, what is the relationship between the law and the gospel? and even those terms may be confusing to you and so let me define them this way when we say law we are referring to every command in scripture where god tells us how to think live and act okay what he what he tells us to believe what he tells us to do what he tells us to feel how we live those are that's the law okay the gospel is an announcement it is good news it's it's god declaring what he has done to save sinners. And at times, we, those two seem to be in conflict with each other. But if we read carefully, we see that they are actually married very well. Right? And so, what we're going to do as we go through this series, That's why we're, that's why we're going to preach this series, but why the Ten Commandments? And, and there's lots of good reasons, but Primary among them is this, that the Ten Commandments are the beginning of and the summary of, or you could say they're the summary of, the law. So we can look at each commandment of the Ten and kind of spiral forward through Scripture into the New Testament and see how they summarize, how they lay out uh, what, what obedience, what, what, uh, what God's law looks like. So, if words like law, obedience, righteousness, holiness... Those give you the, the heebie-jeebies, right? You're in good company. Israel was terrified when the law came down at Mount Sinai, okay? But what I hope is true of me and of you by the end of this summer, by the end of this series, is that we can say with the psalmist, I delight in the law. The law of God is my delight. That's our goal. We want to we delight in the law, uh, the law that God has written. So let me... Let me read for us. Please turn with me to Exodus chapter twenty. And I'm going to pray before we read. God in heaven, as we as we begin to look at your law and what it says to the To those of us who are saved by grace, and even what it says to the whole world, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, help us to see, help us to hear, lead us to believe, help us to trust you. God, we need your intervening grace, and so we pray that you would intervene now as we Read your word, and then as we hear it preached, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. After about 20 years in school... I finally learned how to read. And what I mean by that is that I finally learned how to read so that I could understand what I was reading. All right, so, so I, I don't want to disparage the institution in Tuscaloosa that uh, awarded me my first degree. Um, but needless to say, it was a little bit easier than seminary And when I got to seminary, I realized very quickly for the amount of things that I had to read, for the amount of things that I had to study, that I had no clue how to really read in order to study and comprehend, all right? Until I found a book in the library, and you're going to find this, this is humorous, I found a book called, How to Read a Book. (laughs) It exists. And it actually was very helpful. And one of the things that it told you to do was to read the introduction, Now, how many of you, when you read a book, assuming A, you read, how many of you actually read the introduction to the book? Uh, Well, then never mind. Okay, so I was apparently in the minority, (laughs) right? Uh, Up until that point, the introduction was just extra material that I did not need to consult, okay? Uh, Little did I know that for many books, I was missing something that would have helped me out a whole lot, right? The introduction, a good introduction anyway, sets the tone for the rest of the book. And it tells you, here's here's how we're going to get where we're going. Here's what's included in the book. And so what I could do then is say, all right, if this was something I was studying, I didn't have to read the whole thing. I could say, okay, well, I don't need these parts. I can read these parts, right? The introduction puts everything in perspective. Now, I want you to to verify something for me when you get home. Don't do it now on your smartphone. Um, But I want you to do a Google Images search for Ten Commandments Monuments. And I want you to see if they've left anything out or if you notice anything being left out. All the commandments are there, but in just about every picture that I saw of lots of different monuments, they leave out the introduction or they only include half. And without the introduction, the rest of it makes no sense. Without the introduction, they're just bare laws. But with the introduction, what I just read in verses 1 and 2, or in verse 2 rather, they are a sign of God's grace. And so that leads me to make this rather bold statement that actually God's grace comes before God's law. Right? Now what we usually think is, no, 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 no. When, we, when we're talking about the gospel, when we're trying to lead somebody to Jesus We give them the law first. The law tells you where you fall short, and so you know that you need a Savior. And that's true. I think Paul does that in Romans. But if you look at the Bible as a whole, the pattern you will see is that before God gives His law, God tells you what He has done. Right? And that's actually covenant structure. The great king tells his servants, tells his people, here is what I have done for you, Now live in light of that. So grace comes first. Okay? God's grace comes before God's law. You see it in Exodus. Actually, you see it in Genesis. Before God ever tells Adam what not to eat, He tells him all that He's made for them. God's grace comes before His prohibition. You see it in Exodus. You see it in Deuteronomy. You see it in Romans, Galatians, Ephesians. We just finished our study of Ephesians. And for well over half the book, God is saying through the Apostle Paul, here's what I have done for you. Now live in light of that. That's the structure we have in Scripture. God's grace comes first and the law follows. And if we don't understand that, we're going to wrestle with the law. All right? So let's see how God's grace comes first. What does he give us? First, God gives us his name. Look there in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord. Now, we've read that enough and we've seen it enough that it may not strike you uh, as anything special, but when you see in, in many of your Bibles, you'll see that Lord there is capitalized. All all caps, all four letters are capitalized. And what that's telling you is that the, that is the Hebrew name, that is the Hebrew word, and we don't even know how to say it, Yahweh. All right? It's just four characters, Why? Y-H-W-H. It came to be so sacred to the Jews that they wouldn't even pronounce it. They figured it it was too sacred to even say aloud. And so when they finally put the scriptures down, they didn't put vowel points on it. And that led later scribes to put certain vowels on it that gave us the name Jehovah. And now we've gone back and have said, Jewish scholars have said, actually it's probably not Jehovah closer to Yahweh. All right, so that's what... All of that extra history lesson is to tell you this. This is God's special, unique covenant name. The other words for God in the Hebrew Bible can be applied to other deities, to other false gods. But this word references only the Lord, okay? And it's the name he gave Moses. When when he was sending Moses to go rescue his people, Moses said, Who should I tell him is sending me? And he said... You tell him, I am ascending you. Yahweh. Right? God gives us his name. God gives his name to his people. And what that tells us is he says, I'm talking to you. This is not some impersonal deity way up there in the stratosphere. This is the, this is the maker of heaven and earth who has drawn close to name a people for himself. He says, I am God. The Lord, I am Yahweh. He gives them His name and talks directly to them. Right? He's on the top of the mountain, clothed in in fire and smoke, and all of his all of the people, all of his gathered people. One commentator pointed out, this is the one time in history when every single one of God's people was gathered to hear the word. Okay, um, and they and they hear His name. This is who I am. But then, then even maybe more special than that, He says, "I am." Your God. He says he belongs to us. Like a dad belongs to a child. I am yours. I'm not just the God. I'm your God. I'm not their God. I'm your God. You belong to me. And I belong to you. Now, is that something God has to do? No something God chooses to do because He loves us in His grace. Listen to how Moses describes the relationship in Deuteronomy 7. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you are actually the fewest of all peoples. So why did God set his love on us? It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why does God love us? Because he loves us. And because he's keeping a promise that he made to Abraham. Okay. So God gives us his name, and he talks directly to his people. But also God gives us his salvation Right? The great king lays out what he's done. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the, in the images that I found on Google of Ten Commandments Monument, this was the part that gets left out. Why do we, why do we leave out God's grace before the law? No no wonder we have an issue understanding the law. No wonder we struggle with it. No wonder some of us become self-righteous from trying to keep it, and other of us run from it because we're afraid of it. Because we don't understand that, that God gives grace before He gives the law. Right? And this is the God we have. He rescues in big fashion. Remember with me how He saved Israel from Egypt. Right, Egypt was the United States of that day, the most powerful nation, the largest economy, the best army. And God doesn't sneak his people out the back door. No, he comes, right, he, sent, he sends his ambassador into the throne room. And he says, let him go. And Pharaoh says, no. And God says, Okay. And then in ten successive plagues, he dominates Pharaoh. He humiliates Egypt. He shows them that all of the gods they worship are false. And he shows that he alone is the ruler of the universe and that he cares for slaves. That's how he saves his people. And then when they're on the banks of the Red Sea, only, only God could have designed it this way. They are, they are on the banks of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changes his mind. And so the people are stopped. They can't get through the water, and they look back. They hear the, they hear the hooves, right? They look back, and they see the chariots coming. Pharaoh's coming to get them. And how do they respond? They look at Moses, and they, and they complain. They say, weren't there enough graves in Egypt that you let us out here in the desert to die? There's no way out. And so Moses looks to God, and God makes a way, a highway, through the water, right? He piles up the the Red Sea, the small ocean, on both sides, and they walk through on dry ground. What about the Egyptians? When they try to go through God's highway, he crushes them, he crushes Pharaoh and his chariots. That's how God saves. That's how God delivers. Now, do God's people deserve that? What do you think they do as soon as they leave the banks, as they make their way into the wilderness? The water's bitter. We don't have anything to eat. They actually say this in Exodus 16. Right. Exodus 14 I have my numbers right. They, they cross the Red Sea. Exodus 15, they watch Pharaoh destroy. They watch the army destroy, and they sing a song about it. So they're rejoicing. In the very next chapter, here's what they're saying. Would that we had died by Yahweh's hand in Egypt. There we had plenty of meat and plenty of bread. We wish you'd just killed us then. Are those people deserving of salvation? And yet God rescues And he saves. Right? That doesn't stop him from saying, Here, I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of the house of slavery. They didn't earn their salvation by good works. They were given salvation in spite of their bad hearts. So right here at the beginning of the law, we see very clearly that the law does not save It is not given to save. So why then the law? What is the law given for? Again, Scripture gives lots of answers to that question, and we'll look at many of them as we go through this series. But the most helpful one at this point is this. His law reveals His character, which is what He wants His people to conform to. Right? He says, I am your God, this is what I'm like, I want you to be like me. Which is why Leviticus is full of the phrase, be holy, because I am holy. I'm different, I'm set apart. I want you to be different. I want you to be set apart. I've adopted you, you're my sons, you're my daughters, and that means you need to bear the family likeness. And so he gives the law. And so as we go through, as we look at each of these commandments, we're also going to look at how Jesus transforms them and deepens them in the New Testament. But as we look at each one, we need to see how the commandments reflect the heart of God and then how they reflect, how how it speaks to our hearts as his sons and daughters, right? So the commandment to not kill reflects God's love of life as the life giver, so we need to be people who love and cherish and preserve life. That's kind of what we'll do as we go through. But the commandments are meant to be, His law is meant to be a reflection of His holy, gracious, and good character. And it's something that we can, um, we can be conformed to. And we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in that as well. But let me close with this. <coughs> in Deuteronomy... Chapter, uh, chapter 6, Deuteronomy is 40 years later. All of God's people are ready to go into the promised land. Moses does not get to go, okay? But Moses is going through all that God has done and reiterating the law for them as they, as they go in to inherit the promised land. Deuteronomy 5, he goes back through the Ten Commandments with all of its reasons, its blessings, its consequences, says a few more things, talks about the greatest commandment. But then at the end of Deuteronomy 6, in verse 20, he says, In the future, when you're in the promised land, your son is going to ask you, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Basically, Dad, why do we believe all this stuff? Why do you believe all this stuff? Why do you do that? And the dad is supposed to say, God said so. We do it. Amen? No. The father is to respond by talking about his salvation. The father goes back and he says, You see, son, we were, we were slaves and God rescued us. He brought us out of slavery and he made us his people and he gave us this land. That's why we obey his law. That's why we believe and live this way. Nothing's changed. Right? When parents, when your children look at you and say, Dad, Mom, why do we believe all this Christianity stuff? Why do you believe what you say you believe? Why do you do what you say you do? We say the same thing. See, son, I was a slave, and I've been rescued. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God, by His grace, made me alive with Christ. Right. He rescued me from Satan with a mighty hand. And He did it with something even more miraculous than ten plagues. He did it by becoming flesh Himself. By keeping His law, which I cannot keep, And then by going to the cross, and just like Pharaoh's army, being crushed under the weight of God's wrath, He was the Lamb, under whose blood I have life. God rescued me with a mighty hand. That's why I believe and obey. He gives me His law not to crush me, but to show me how needy I am of His grace. And that's one function of the law. It shows us that we are in desperate need of grace because we cannot measure up. And so we flee to Christ. And then it also shows us how we can grow to be like Him. But we can't get there without the grace. You can only say that. You can only say that the law shows me how needy I am and helps me to grow in in God's image if you are in Christ. Because if you come to the law expecting it to be able to save you, expecting to be able to do it, then you will be defeated. You will be crushed. And you will be left without hope. That is not what the law was intended to do. If you come to the law without the gospel, if you come to the law without reading the introduction, then you will be crushed. The law does not save. Jesus does. Bear that in mind as we we go through the law. And if you don't know Him, if you have not... As the old Scottish hymn says, laid your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet. If you have not given up on your self-righteousness and come to Christ, then I invite you to do so now. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we want hearts conformed and confirmed to your will, to your law. We read in it that it is a delight. That you have given it to us for our life. God, that we, can, that we can be your people is an act of your unmerited grace. But for those in Christ, you have said, you are my sons and daughters. And you have graciously given the commands in Scripture to show us how to live. And yet, God, we need more grace. And so you give us your Holy Spirit. Just as Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 36, that you have put your Spirit within us so that we will love and do your commandments. So God, help us to cherish your grace in the law. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.